So I wanted to just introduce um, our family real quick for those who might not know me. Christopher Green, one of the elders here. But if you haven't seen this picture, this is my crew. Um, we had our first wedding in April. My daughter Erin got married to a just a lovely, godly man um, in L.A. And that's my wife in the back there. And um, we've just been so blessed. Seven kids. You can see six girls and one son. The last one was a son. We weren't trying for a son. It just happened that way uh, by God's providence. Uh, we were a military family, so traveled all over the country, the world. We were stationed in, in Germany for a short time. Uh, I know Grace is a, an Air Force um, uh, person here, so all good. But uh, we've just been so blessed and so happy to be here. Retiring from the military took us to Massachusetts, <clears throat> and then because of work, excuse me a second, <clears throat> because of work, it brought us here to Maryland, and we are just super, super excited to be here at Hope Bible Church. So that's our family in a nutshell, real quick. Um, so we'll jump to what we're doing today, right? And I'm a visual guy, so I put this together. You always got to be careful when you start to put visuals together, right? Um, but I thought this this was good for me to help put what we're doing in context, right? We're basically four quarters, four semesters of theology or these major doctrines. And how do these all fit together? So you can see at the top, um, it doesn't really show up here, but this is a light green. So the... the um, the bibliology, the scriptures, which we're covering, and theology proper, God, is what we're covering in, in uh, semester one, if you will. So that's the numerals, the Roman numerals, one, two, three, and four. That's how it's going to flow. What I wanted to show, you can see the theology proper, Christology, Christ, pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. That is the Trinity. And you see it kind of peeking above the... Um, the, the special revelation circle, if you will. What I want to point out, what we covered, <clears throat> what Pastor Allen covered is with general revelation, right? We can know God. We can know about God. It says that in Romans 1. And that's why I show it kind of popping its head up above the special revelation circle. We talked about we can understand some of the characteristics, some of the attributes of who God is just through his creation, right? But to really understand who man is in the context of God, who God is, right? Who we are outside of God in our fallen nature, who we are as children of God once we are saved, right? That all needs to be done through special revelation. That's why setting the context, spending so much time on the Bible is so very, very important, all right? So I don't know if this is helpful or not. It was helpful for me just to put it into context, but to really hit home the point of why special revelation, and for us today, the Bible, is so critically, critically important. To understand the world that we live in. To understand our relationship with God. Either in our fallen nature or in our saved nature as a child. Okay? Does that help? Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> so, a little bit of a review. Last week... Um, you basically talk about four characteristics when you talk about the Bible, right? It's inspiration, it's inerrancy, and today we'll talk about the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. So a little bit of review of what you talked about last week. The inspiration. Words of Scripture are spoken by God, or God-breathed, we like to say. All right. The Bible does not just contain the Word of God. It is the inspired Word of God. I don't know about you guys. Um, I know we're in an electronic age, and there are times when it's convenient. I'll pull out my iPad or my iPhone, and that's what I use to read, you know, follow through with or follow with the, the pastor's reading of Scripture. There is just something about opening up a, a hard copy with paper, God's Word, especially when you understand this is God's Word. Right For me, it's just something very special to open up the paper, to hold it, um, helps me to concentrate. So whatever your, whatever your format is, um, you use that. But I just for me, it's really special knowing that this is God's Word. So it is the inspired Word of God. It is a treasure of heavenly instruction. Right When you think of it that way, it's a treasure from the Lord. And we'll talk a little bit, um, well, let me keep going. I love the dual authorship, right? You talked last week about the Holy Spirit superintended the writing through individual personalities and writing styles and experiences. And let me go back to Second Peter, which is a, just a wonderful proof text 
of what is written in the Bible, and you covered this last week. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Absolutely critical, right? The Holy Spirit superintending, but using humans as the vehicle. That was God's sovereign design. And I love this on page 27. You guys covered it last week. Um, It's under the heading of the unity of the Bible. Written over 15 centuries, over 40 authors, different geographic places, different cultures. And you see the different styles of writing between the authors, right? All of that bringing their experiences, all designed by God. Every experience they had was providentially introduced by uh, God the Father, right? And these are our authors superintended. It's just incredible. And it's consistent over that entire time. All right, truly, truly a treasure from the Lord. In addition, the Bible does not become the word of God as it is understood. Rather, it is the word of God, whether or not man understands it. Okay? The inerrancy. Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It's without error. True without any mixture of error in the whole or in the part. True in all it asserts, including matters of doctrine, Christian living, ministry, history, geography, and even science. The original documents written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic ensure the accuracy of all careful copies and translations of the Bible. I wanted to show you a chart that uh, someone gave me in my last class when we were going through the Old Testament survey. I call it the translation speedometer because that's what it looks like, but it really gets after the readability of translations. And I'm not here to be critical of any translation. I just, um, what I wanted to show when I became um, a new Christian, I was given the NIV. Can you see that in the middle there? Because it's a very readable Bible. Okay. However, you'll see to the far left the NASB, which is currently prescribed by Hope Bible Church. But the ESV is there too. Both great translations. They have subtle nuances. But I just want to encourage you, if if let's say your primary is the NIV, that you might move more towards the left with an NASB or an ESV simply because of the accuracy of the words that are written in the translation. As you become a student of God's Word, really getting into the meaning word by word, you need a a more accurate translation to understand that, to really wrestle with the Word. All right, so I thought this was a neat chart, and and again, encourage you, if you're far right because of readability, I think that's fine early on, but you're going to want to move more to the left so you can really understand and dig in and and have a good hermeneutic of the word. Um, Last week, I think there was a question about translation. So, Pastor Allen, I'm going to turn it back over to you to answer that. Uh, The question was how it was translated. Was it translated from the original languages or from something else? And it turns out that something else was just as much a factor then as it was now because all of what we call the Old Testament was already translated from the Hebrew into Greek. And that translation is called the Septuagint, um, except because there were 70 translators, which was a good thing, actually. Um, why Greek? Because that was the common language throughout most of the world um, in the intertestamental period. And so in, in the time of Christ, uh, that was a very commonly used <coughs> version of the Old Testament. The uh, and so it would have been possible for uh, Jerome and, and others to translate from the Septuagint rather than from the Hebrew. Uh, but it turns out uh, Jerome did not. He went right to the Hebrew, which was a good thing. Uh, it turns out Jerome wasn't the only one who contributed to what became the Vulgate, um, but the, the, the goal was then to translate the Bible into Latin, which at this time became sort of the official, more widespread language. Um, and there was some evolution 
in the the sort of the conclusion, the, the filling out, the completion, and and the recognition and use of the Vulgate, like over hundreds of years. Um, but it eventually became the official translation for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, other translations, and I think particularly uh, Wycliffe's translation into English, was based on the Vulgate, not on the original languages. Um, and so the context of the question was um, about the care of translation. Uh, ideally, and, and with that uh, speedometer, if you will, um, the the ones on the left side of your screen uh, were translated directly from the original languages and from the earliest manuscripts available of those original languages. And so that's why well, that and the, the translation philosophy of each of them on the left side was that God inspired the very words, and so we need to be very careful about the meaning of those words to the original recipient. Um, and so on the right you've got paraphrases, and in the middle you've got somewhere in between. Sometimes the NIV translation approach was called dynamic equivalence, mm. sort of a fancy word for sort of what is meant. Uh, but the point of prayer, uh, but the point of, of translation ought to be to translate what God has inspired, which includes the actual words, without being a word-for-word translation because going from one language to another you, you really can't do that and idioms and this kind of thing need clarification context so it is a challenge but the point we made yesterday last week was just as God superintended the inspiration and the transmission he's also superintending the careful translations and um, fortunately, the, the Latin Vulgate was, was pretty good in that respect. Um, but just as an example of, of uh, traps you can get into when translating, you know, in, in the, um, at the time of the Reformation, and, and <coughs> several hundred years before that, the Roman Catholic Church developed this system of doing penance for your sins. And um, that was supposedly based on the, their interpretation of Vulgate. And so where, where the, um, their interpretation was doing penance, what the text actually was saying was being repentant, which is a lot different. Um, and so words matter. Um, anyway, I don't want to take any more of your time. No, it's so good. That's, it's great. I, I mean, uh, <coughs> understanding translations <coughs> and the importance of them, it's a great study. A great study. I did want to mention on this when we talk about you know, going through the doctrine, systematic theology, um, if you haven't heard of these resources... <coughs> Uh, Wayne Grudem is one you'll hear often and is, you'll see a lot of reference in here on some of the definitions. It's a beast, right? But, but it's out there. I think they do um, have this online as well so you can get the electronic copy of that. Um, John MacArthur has another systematic theology that's really helpful. Rob Thompson turned this on to me. Um, it's this, but it's a condensed version. I think one of his graduate students took this and, and turned it into this. So this is a nice travel companion if uh, you want to bring it on any travels. But... But again, those are complement your study of God's Word. <coughs> All right, so last week you talked about, again, we're on bibliology, the characteristics of the Bible, inspiration and errancy. This week we're going to talk about the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And some quick definitions, again, from Grudem. Authority, the idea that all the words in Scripture are God's, in such a way that to disbelieve or disbe, uh, disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. All right, let that sink in. Next week, you'll talk about, or we'll talk about the importance of interpreting God's word. So it's important to understand all of that in context. 
but it is authoritative. We are to obey it. Sufficiency of Scripture. The idea that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Did you catch that? As God worked his, his redemption through history, it was progressive revelation. All right, so you can think of, um, again, we had the Old Testament class last uh, semester, thousands of years that people had maybe just the first five books of the Bible. By God's design, that's all they needed for that time period. And again, the privilege we have now of the 66 books of the Bible, the closed canon, we have everything that God intends for us to have, to know about Him, about salvation, about how to live. It's just, it's incredible. I get excited about it. Sorry. All right, so we're going to jump into our lesson on page 33, talking about, again, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and Christian practice. The Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be evaluated. So I'll read the first one, Matthew 5. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Keep and teach the commandments of God's word. It's that simple. Moving down to the fourth one, uh, John 16. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. I think it's safe to say anyone who has spent any time in God's word, sometimes it can be tough, right? But the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit to understand and to interpret God's precious, precious word. And we're going to talk more about interpretation next week. The last one, the bold. Um, I want you to actually turn in your Bible to Hebrews 4, and we'll put that into context. Very powerful passage. Hebrews 4, and I'm going to start in verse 1, and this is really about the believer's rest. Now, you remember, Hebrews is, is, written, is written to the Jews, um, as Romans is to the Gentiles, Hebrews to the Jews, and, and there's an encouragement. Um, some were trying to go back to the traditions of Judaism, and the author of Hebrews is, is trying to implore them, Christ is the better way. Hebrews 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as you have been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. And here's our passage. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Christ is the word. This is the living, active word, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces our hearts. 
And again, we're going to talk about this in the application when we talk about how this is used, let's say, in biblical counseling, right? Because it pierces the heart. You can get to the heart issues, all right, for those who are in rest in Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of Scripture. That takes us right into point number two. The Scriptures are powerful and effective in transforming the believer into the image of Christ, the sanctification of believers. God's Word applied by the Holy Spirit, again, are sufficient for life and godliness. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We covered Psalm 19, I think it was in Lesson 2. One of my favorite, one of my absolute favorite, because it demonstrates the general revelation up front, I think verses 1 through 6, and then it talks about special revelation in the rest of that chapter. It's just a comprehensive um, psalm, if you will, about God communicating to his people in both general and special revelation. Um, the next passage is kind of long. I won't read all of it, but I, I do want to cover some of it because it's a, a beautiful contrast between wisdom and foolishness. And you don't see the foolishness part in here, um, but it's very similar. So does not wisdom call? You'll see that foolishness calls as well. And understanding, lift up her voice on top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet. She takes her stand beside the gates at the opening to the city. At the entrance of the door, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, discern prudence, and O fools, discern wisdom. Listen, for I shall speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will produce right things, for my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way. In the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me. And those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. In my yield and choice of silver, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasures. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I'll, I'll stop there and simply highlight that last um, part that I read. That wisdom was there from eternity past, right? And we're also going to talk about being it eternal. It will last Forever, So that wisdom that is described here was there at the very beginning, at the time of um, God's existence and certainly at the time of creation. Popping down to the, the bold there, all scripture, uh, obviously a very um, known proof text, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It doesn't stop there though. What's the purpose? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Right? That's the purpose. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Again, the, the purpose of this, when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture for life and godliness, for salvation and sanctification. All right? That's an intended purpose. Since the Bible is the Word of God, like I just talked about, it is eternal. So we talk about from time past, but it is also eternal. God's Word will never pass away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. Matthew 24. Alright, so any questions on, on any of the uh, passages that we read? No? Okay. 
we'll move over to some additional notes on the sufficiency of Scripture. What the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture means, and that's the definition that I just read up front. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. Yeah, I'll introduce it now. So part of our military uh, journey took us to Utah, and we lived uh, near Ogden, which is just north of Salt Lake City. Um, but as you know, that's kind of the heart and center of the, the Mormon religion. And, um, and I'm not trying to be critical. I just want to give you an observation. It's, it's very pervasive throughout the entire culture. The business, um, friendships, um, where they go to church, it's just it's pervasive. Um, so it was very interesting to observe. But we had a couple missionaries come to our door. Even there in Ogden, they had missionaries there. And, and we invited them in in the back patio and had a conversation with them. And <clears throat> they would claim that, that they believe in the Bible. Right? But it's, it's not their main tool, if you will. It's the Book of Mormons. They, they say they believe in the Bible. They say it complements. It doesn't. When you start to question them about what's in the Bible, they, they don't understand the Bible at all. They don't know the Bible at all. All right? So here's a case where the Lord gives us what we need, right, through the canon, and it is now closed. The danger of every false religion is they bring in all the extra, the extra revelation. And that is, and that's the foundation of the Mormon faith. Joseph Smith was given all this additional revelation. And it's ironic how... It seems to change as the culture or the times need it to. So it's very convenient for them to be able to change that special revelation. But that's why it's so important that we understand and agree that the canon is closed. God has given us everything we need for today. Nothing extra is needed. That's where people get into to danger. Right? That's the warning. Creed, I don't know if you want to add anything to that experience or what we did there or... Yeah. It's just very, very, very sad. I I will add this, and it's probably true of of all false religions, but the the weightiness, the heaviness that was put on them by by what they need to do to be right before God, um, you just saw it. You saw it in their lives. Um, I believe it was one of the highest rates of prescribed depression drugs in the nation was was there in Utah. And I, I believe it's attributed to... Um, the weight of what they put on themselves in that false religion. But um, just a little anecdote of something we experienced moving around the country. (laughs) What God revealed to man at any point in history was sufficient for his purposes at that time. And again, you see that through the Old Testament um, um, for sure. And and again, what a blessing we have to have the complete canon right at our fingertips 24-7. There's nothing man can say about sound doctrine, godly living, or any moral issue to improve upon what God has revealed in Scripture. Nothing else is needed to understand the truth. Again, I go back to what we experienced is they were trying to understand all of this with a different religion, right? With with new revelation. They were trying to make sense of all this. You're always going to run into trouble if you go outside of those boundaries of God's work. It is sufficient for everything that we need. Now let's talk about um, something here. Nothing else is needed to understand truth. What do you feel about um, Christian books or podcasts or sermons or commentaries? 
Give me your thoughts. This says nothing else is needed. Go ahead, Kareem. Um, I find it helpful to glean from students of God's Word who have learned maybe the original languages and have read it and studied the culture where I have not. So I feel like I can glean from their studies and their um, pursuit of God's Word. But ultimately... I have to come back to God's word and line it up with what he has revealed there. So it's not a fail-safe. It can help, but I always want to come back to God's word and make sure it's still lining up, even though I want to learn from them and glean a lot from them. Mm -hmm. Grace? Yeah, I see it kind of like... um, if you're in like you know a trigonometry class or something like that, you're having, there's an equation that you have to solve. Theoretically, you can just logic your way through the entire thing, and it is theoretically possible to do it without any help whatsoever. But if you're shaky on principles, or if you're just you're, you know, it's it doesn't come easily to you, getting help from somebody definitely helps you further your understanding. If you completely rely on tutorials and tutors and stuff like that, you're not going to learn anything, and you're still not going to know how to solve the equation. But getting that help helps fill in the gaps so that you can get that understanding Mm -hmm. but you know theoretically if you don't have any help you can still do it it's just a lot easier when you have other people helping you along yep good any other comments on that yes it's also like what they're claiming a lot of christian commentaries like are very clear that they're just helping you interpret the scriptures whereas like the book of mormon the way the mormons see it it could be like described as a commentary, but instead they believe it's like scripture, and mm-hmm. that kind of separates the difference between how uh, Christians use commentaries and how the Mormons are using the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Um, they're treating it as scripture. A helpful visualization that my parents' church, the leaders there, have used is like if you think of scripture as being the line, we're instructed not to add anything to the scripture, so like go above this line or take anything away from the scriptures, go below the line. So like the goal is to always stay on the line of mm, scripture. Good, good, yeah. Um, I certainly am not saying that that the extra aids are bad. They're not, all right. But just don't give up the fight too quick. Sometimes you got to wrestle with the word, and that's in, you're intended to do that, right? Um, I think we'll talk next week when we talk about interpretation. Use the verses that are really clear to help decipher, you know, interpret some of those verses that are difficult. But I encourage you, don't don't give up the fight of wrestling with God's Word, Holy Scripture, too quickly. Now, can the books and, and the aids and the commentaries help with application and understanding? Absolutely. You know, good analogy, right? If you need the help, go to it. But don't abandon, you know, your study too quickly would be my would be my recommendation. Pastor Allen, anything? Yeah, please. Yeah, um, just to add to that, um, as has already been mentioned, if there's a, a book out there or some other resource um, that claims to have authority other than from scripture then beware I mean that's that's um, you know if, if the the line is scripture right and so if anyone is saying something that's inconsistent with scripture then um, and it's speaking about the the topics of scripture morality and, and God and, and so on then um you know it's wrong because yep. scripture is the authority. Yep. Uh, however, if there's something written to help us to, that is itself a study of scripture and helping us to see the breadth of scripture and how scripture interprets scripture and how the words are used in scripture, it's not claiming authority of its own, it's helping us to see how God has mm. written to us in the word. Uh, that's not undermining the, the doctrine of efficiency it's, it's actually helping us to yeah that's a good way to frame that yep. use the, the word um, and we kind of stand on the shoulders of, of those who have gone before us um, not that they were all inerrant but to the extent that they were interpreting scripture uh, correctly we benefit yeah good okay thank you good discussion and then I think it doesn't relate to Mormon, but um, 
모텔에 대한 콧, 콧, 아이돌 콧. 예. 투미 맥센스, 조아미스맨 스터디 드리버, 에브리띵 투미 맥센스. 아이돌 코리안 콧, 데스워라로, 나로 하이, 그리스워라로, 데스워라로, 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 Right? We barely got by. That's not what this means here. It does mean comprehensive for what God intended for us to know. Okay? It doesn't mean that God has revealed everything, though, to us on all subjects. Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. There's a term that you might have heard, incomprehensible. Right? God is incomprehensible. What does that mean? We can know true things about God, for sure. But God cannot be understood fully or exhaustively. Everything we need to know about God is in His Scripture. That does not mean it's everything that God is. Okay? Incomprehensible. So we talked about sufficient. Sufficient for what? Sufficient for salvation. Second Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you all wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. First Peter, you have been born again out of seed which is perishable but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. And then sufficient for godly living, which I just read. So that, you know, that passage in Timothy, Timothy 3, 14 through 17, really is a great proof text for the purpose of the Bible. Salvation and godly living or sanctification. Second Peter 1, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not some things, but everything through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Psalm 1, a good one. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Um, Karina and I have started to do some counseling um, with some, some married couples. And often at the beginning of a counseling session, you want to understand where they are from, from a faith perspective. Are they even believers? And then if they are, how much time are they in the Word? Um, in, in a lot of cases, what we find is they are believers, but their time in the Word is minimal. A lot of it is, well, I do my devotionals every day. And I'm not opposed to devotionals. Again, devotionals can be very helpful with, you know, how do you take God's word and apply it to your life? But they're not spending time in the living word of God, right? That's why it's so important to meditate day and night on the word of God. Again, I'm not against devotionals and some of these complementary uh, products, if you will. But the line, right? I like that, Tears. The line needs to be scripture. It is complete, Nothing is lacking. And you kind of get this nice bookend in Deuteronomy and Revelation. So Deuteronomy 4, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you. Again, setting the line. Revelation 22, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And then the bottom, Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend 
earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now the context there in Jude is he is warning them against false teachers. Right? False teachers that were trying to counter what was written in the Bible. And the, the encouragement there is to contend earnestly. Wrestle with the word. Wrestle with your faith. Right? Contend earnestly. I love that. It's a war fighting term. Yeah, if I, if I understand what you're saying, you're making a great point, right? We need, we need to be studying the entire word of God. It cannot be taken out of context. And I think we'll get more into that next week when we talk about the interpretation and why it's good, um, kind of from a systematic theology standpoint. That's what this class is, right? Looking at the major doctrines as we look at the entire Bible, what does it say about each of these areas? So it is important to understand all of it in context. And again, that's where aids can come in that can help you to understand true meanings of a word, can help you understand the context of a passage, the context of a book, and then where does the book fit in all of redemptive history. Um, That's why I really enjoyed the Old Testament survey class we did um, uh, last summer, or yeah, previous summer, is because it really put a lot of it into context for me personally. So it was really good. So important, yes, to, to get the entire context of the Bible. So let's look at some of the implications for the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And I would say the first, you know, letter A there, one through four, is really an encouragement. Look to Scripture for understanding true doctrine. What to believe, right? It, it helps you understand all of this in the context of who God is. Understanding God's will. What to do. Gaining wisdom. We just talked about that long passage in Proverbs. How to think. And then proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. Letter B is really about giving us conf- confidence. Special revelation has ceased. The foundation was complete in Christ and the apostles. Can you imagine how um, uncertain or lack of confidence you would have if you felt like there was still special revelation that was given. How do you interpret it? How do you know if it's true or not? We are blessed to know that we have a closed canon. It, it would be very difficult to know that there was still special revelation being given. Okay? Exactly, exactly, right? So we can have confidence knowing that the canon is closed. We have everything that we need to understand God and to understand ourselves in the context of that. And then the warning, legalism, adding extra biblical requirements. Again, going above the line, if you will. Um, Tradition is not equal to or above Scripture. It's easy to let tradition and culture seep into our understanding um, of the Bible. Not to say that we, un- we, we need to do that, right, for, to understand the meaning, but I mean our culture today or our traditions today um, can sometimes override what we understand in Scripture. And then obviously false teachers are known to be false if their teaching is inconsistent with Scripture. So again, we have this, this beautiful line or foundation. Now we can test. We know who the false teachers are. If it doesn't line up with the Word, again, gives us great, great confidence. All right, I really want to make sure we get into um, some of the application here and and have some good discussion. All right, let's go to interpretation. How has God authenticated his word, showing that it is from him? I feel like step one is just how many prophecies in the Bible. Okay, yeah. Very clearly true. Yeah, prophecies fulfilled for sure. What else? So we have prophecy, signs and wonders. Archaeological evidence. Okay. Because, like, people didn't think David actually existed, and then they found evidence that, yes, he actually did. The Bible was right. And then uh, there's possibly a site where they found Jericho. You know, it's a little ambiguous, but it matches the description. So, yeah. There's hard evidence for that being accurate, too. So, yeah. um, Pastor, and I don't know if you covered it in first. I thought I heard you mention it. You know, it's not, we got to be careful. It's not definitive. Mm-hmm. But we, we see over time that it just continues to reinforce what, what we see in the Bible. So, yes, absolutely. I think of the, the proof text that we saw in Second Peter 1, right? No scriptures from man, but through the Holy Spirit. I also like um, in Matthew 4, right, when Jesus is tempted by Satan. What does he use to fight Satan? Scripture. And do you guys know um, in those three cases where he's pulling from? Anybody know? It's all from the same book. You can't answer. <laughs> Deuteronomy. Good. Uh, yes, Green. Um, I don't know for sure, but is his word authenticated? I think 
I remember reading scriptures that say we know that God um, that God's word was working in you because we saw the change in you. Hmm. Right in Acts or it's in the New Testament where it says like where we saw his work his word at work in you. So we know that um, I guess it doesn't authenticate well it does authenticate the word of God, but it also authenticates that they are true believers. I think the context is saying that they're true believers. But I guess it does also authenticate the word of God that is powerful and it works in our lives. Yeah, it takes us back to Second Timothy three, right? So um, the purpose of the word is to um, instruct us, to convict us, reprove, uh, to correct us, and spread tr- training in righteousness. We've all experienced all of those things, yeah. and we see evidence of it um, uh, in, in others, and you can see examples of it in the scripture where uh, God uses his word to convict and to uh, get our attention and to cause us to change and want to change. It's powerful. Yeah. Yes, Jess. Um. I think maybe this one maybe is it's arguable, but um, I think there are so many ways that what we read in God's word about human nature, mm. or about sin, mm. or about the way the world is, we can look in our own in our own experience. We can look at the at the world around us um, and see that what God says is true yeah. about ourselves and about our world, um, and that's just experience yeah yeah that's a great you know the observation you think of Romans 1 where God says they they suppress the truth right and he gave them over to their sin we see that right we can observe that yeah that's a great one I also had um, Luke 24 which is the road to Emmaus where Jesus is walking with the two and he says you know let me tell you about Jesus through the the law and the prophets and the writings. He was referring back to the all of the Old Testament, right? To say this is this was from the Lord and it reveals um, about me. It's going to talk all about me in, in the the redemptive story of of God. It's just uh, it's wonderful. So okay, good. How does the doctrine of inerrancy relate to the sufficiency of Scripture? What did it mean um, when this doctrine of inerrancy, what did that, what did that relate to? What did that mean? No error, no error right? There, there's no falseness. It won't turn us away from the truth. So how does that relate now to sufficiency? Sufficiency meaning it's sufficient for everything we need in life. So if it's without error and it's sufficient for everything we need in life, right? It, it's a wonderful truth or guide to lead us in, in, in our life for godly living, Right? I think that's a great point, Kareen. You know, we've all been there. You know, Lord, I don't understand your will. I, I don't know what you want. He's given us everything we need to understand at that point in time, right? We can have confidence in that. We can have hope in that. And we that means we need to continue to search the scriptures, right? Yeah, and that's that's kind of the point is sometimes you have questions, right? But we, we drive back to the Bible. That's where we will find the answers. Grace, were you going to add something? I was just going to add, uh, and even when we don't know his exact plan for our life, mm-hmm. we know that everything is to his glory. We know that everything is to his good. And he says it's literally, uh, I, int- I intend all things for your good, yeah. not for evil. Yeah. So even when they're suffering, we know that it's uh, for his plan and it's going to glorify him. And yep. then we'll be in heaven with him one day. Good. There's um, in, in the Grudem book uh, a definition for wisdom that he uses that I really love. It's, let's see, God's, God's best for us using the best means. Right? Let that sink in. He wants the best for us and he's going to get use the best path to get us there. Now, we're not always going to like that path. Sometimes that path is very difficult. It hurts. It's painful. But he knows what's best. We can take great comfort in knowing that the path he's taking us on is the best for what we need for our sanctification. And he has the best purposes in mind for us. I think that's just extremely comforting. But. All right, let's go on to number three. How does the sufficiency of Scripture lead to the practice of biblical counseling? 
So, if I'm understanding you, sanctification yeah, is the work of, of God and us, right? Right? It's synergistic. We play a role in that, in our sanctification, for sure. Yeah. But this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture and biblical counseling. Any? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask this first. How many of you are biblical counselors? Raise your hand. Everyone should raise their hand. It's a trick question, right? We are all biblical counselors. You have a friend that is going through a hard time, right? I don't understand why my marriage is breaking up. I don't understand why I'm having a hard time at work, right? We are all biblical counselors to take them back to the Word. Why? Because it's sufficient. That's the importance of it. It can address every heart issue that's out there. That's the confidence we can have, the encouragement we can have. And why? What does it bring? Ultimately, what does it bring? Truth. Truth. Starts with an H. Hope. You can give people hope because the Bible is without error. It's inspired from God. It's authoritative and it is sufficient. All right? Your uh, types of counseling out there. There is secular counseling um, that's out there. There is also a term you might hear, Christian counseling. And and you have to be cautious. Christian counseling is often a blend of of secular means and biblical counseling. And often the biblical biblical part is a complement. The secular means usually is the the foundational. So you have to be careful. What we prescribe here is biblical counseling. Going to the Word of God to help people through their issues. Because it boils down to a heart attitude. Right? There are a lot of symptoms that are happening, but at the, the core of that is a heart attitude, and the Bible is sufficient to address that. Yes, sir? Yeah, and even though um, uh, secular and the psychological kind of uh, techniques and theories and prescriptions may be trying to address the, uh, the same problem, inevitably... If the problem, and it almost always is, is a manifestation of sin, mm-hmm. they're going to be completely missing the root cause mm-hmm. that they're going to be addressing just the symptom. <clears throat> uh, they may be trying to do something about the symptoms, but they're going to be missing the point because they're not getting at the root cause of the sin. And Scripture does that. Yes, great point. And, and let me caution here too, especially with, um, you know, Pastor Gabe brought... The ACBC, you know, biblical counseling and the certification. Um, I will tell you that group is not anti, let's say, medical, right? Sometimes there are medical issues and and they very much want to be partners with the medical community. So I just want to, you know, highlight that. The other thing that they highlight is the fact that, you know, the, the secular techniques that Pastor Allen talked about, a lot of times there's a lot of science, a lot of money that goes into that. Their observations can be can be good. Right? It's how they assess those, back to the point of, you know, do they accurately assess the sin nature of a person and deal with that? So the observations can be good, but we want to get away from, from what they do with that next. All right? That's where biblical counseling can come in. But you can be a partner with what's happening. Um, because the medical community, I mean, God has given us that as well. Ms. Kareem. Just one more point on the biblical counseling thing. Not only does Scripture... Yeah, um, 
lastly on this topic, I just want to encourage you all again, because nobody raised their hand, right? You are all biblical counselors. Do not fear. God has given you what you need. And you might feel like you're an infant in doing that, but that's what they need to hear. That's what's going to solve their, their heart issue, their problem. You are all biblical counselors. All right, so take encouragement with that. And the other caution I give you too is be a minister of the word, not a dispenser, right? Don't just start throwing out verses. The point was made earlier. Sometimes we can throw things out of context, right? Minister the word to them. Don't just dispense passages. All right. I, um, yes. I, I just kind of want to emphasize what Pastor Plumley said. <clears throat> I've been a counselor for 33 years. Okay. And I have obviously been trained in this secular, psychological mumbo jumbo. Yep. And I can say that now that I'm a believer. And one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of change is because it's not getting at the root. Amen. And a lot of times there is, I mean, sin is just not even a word that is acknowledged. And there is this push to make everybody feel like they're okay, like they're good. And, I mean, that's completely contrary to, to yeah. reality and to Scripture. Yeah. Dan, thanks for sharing that perspective, right? You bring a great perspective having spent so many years there, so thank you. All right, we've got a couple of minutes left for application. Uh, what is the significance of the fact that the Bible is supremely authoritative on all matters about which it speaks? What's the significance of that? Ms. Kareem. Just we're responsible. Okay. And accountable, well, we're accountable, we're responsible, and we can have confidence in um, every, everything it says in every area of our lives. Yeah. Johnny. It's, um, you know, the Bible is our sole foundation for mm-hmm. everything, and that we don't need anything else that would contradict the Bible and yeah. cause confusion. Yeah. It's the starting point, right? Mm-hmm. If you got an issue, you need to understand anything, you know, the line that tears are talked about, that's where you start. You need to start with the Bible. That's the, the significance of it. It's the start in the end. Yeah, start yeah. in the end. Amen. Yes. For instance, it's not just about the moral issue where we go to Scripture, but um, supremely authoritative on all matters about which it speaks, that includes things like history, Mm. science, Mm -hmm. um, philosophy, as we're getting into the moral area, but but if there's a theory out there about the origin of the universe or some other scientific thing about which scripture actually is very explicit, then you start with scripture. You don't start with the other things and interpret scripture in light of them. You interpret them in light of scripture. Yep, great point. And I think specifically of of man in the universe, right? How do you explain that? How do you explain that to your friend, to your unbelieving sister or brother, right? You go back to scripture. That's how you can understand man in the context. Good. In what areas of life is the Bible not adequate as a guide and authority? And what implications does this have? Is it a manual for fixing your car? Of course not. It was never intended to be. But can, your, can, the, can the Bible and truth be applied to that situation where I need to go out and fix my car? How would you apply that? Patience, all right? Are you fixing it and you're grumbling and you're complaining because your car is always broken? Or are you rejoicing always because the Lord has provided a means of transportation, right? Even even in that instance, there's a heart attitude that can be applied from Scripture in this you know very mundane task of fixing your car. It was never intended to be an encyclopedia, a car manual, right? For the things it's intended to be, it is absolutely authoritative and sufficient. Any other comments on that? Questions? Yeah, a lot of times. Yes. So, um, wisdom, because a lot of times we we can tend to jump right away and going to take it somewhere, and have we given much thought to where we're taking it and where we could end up getting overcharged, and then we're we're putting ourselves in a um, situation of um, we are handling our money a certain kind of way, and so... Sometimes we just need to take a breath and just yeah. pause a lot of times before we react because yep. our reactions can um, 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the finance piece. So does, does the Bible tell us which stock we should choose? Not directly. Does it give us lots of wisdom on how to handle finances, right? It talks about a diverse portfolio. It talks about your heart, you know, money not being at the, the center of your heart. Lots of wisdom about how to handle our finances and where our heart should be. So, yep, great example. And just in all of these areas, you've got in Scripture uh, direct commands, but you also have a lot of principles yes. that have wide application, and um, they're there for our benefit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll close now. I, I hope today's lesson just gave you a renewed vigor and thirst for, for being in God's Word. Um, it is such a wonderful treasure, so I... I hope we all spend a lot of time in it. So let me pray.